0: Had anyone realized she was gone? Hagar hadn't really collected her thoughts since fleeing Hebron. Her only driving force was escape. It was the only thing fueling her to keep moving. But as the hours rolled into days, as the emotions and adrenaline were replaced with reason and fear, As she caught her breath for the first time beside a spring of water in the desert, Hagar turned to see if anyone was following her, to see if anyone from her master's household had noticed she had gone missing and chased after her, to see if anyone had seen her. But the only tracks in the sand behind her were her own. It would seem that no one noticed her or cared, and this was the story of her life. Parched, Hagar dips her hands into the pool of water, cupping them to scoop some water to her tongue to quench her thirst. After a few mouthfuls, she stares into the pool of water at her reflection, glaring back at her. Sweat pouring from her face drips into the spring, rippling across its surface. How long would it take for someone to realize she was gone? Would anyone miss her? Does anyone even care about her and her predicament that she has found herself in? I imagine her collapsing to the ground. As tears began forming in her eyes, she knew the answer. No one on God's green earth gave two cents about her and her interests. And it stung even more, being in the middle of nowhere, all alone. And as she lies there, her hands gently rest on the sizable baby bump forming above her waist. This entire time, she has been traveling on foot, covering dozens of miles and crossing dangerous desert terrain. She was pregnant. Probably in her third trimester, if not later, her journey is made even that much more difficult and even more perilous, giving her current situation all the more reason to stop for some water to catch a break to surmise the energy to get back to her homeland and her people in Egypt. She hasn't stepped foot in Egypt in a long, long time. About a decade or so, a lot's changed since then. But maybe by that spring, she remembers the last time she was in Egypt, the moment she met a couple of strangers from Canaan that would change her life forever. She recalls laying her eyes on them for the first time when they waltzed into Pharaoh's court one unassuming afternoon. Their names were Abram and Sarai. She knew in her gut that something was off about them. She could sense that these two were prone to unnecessary drama. Little did she realize that she soon would be cast as an insignificant minor character in their story, a subplot to the main plot of this unfolding biblical soap opera in the pages of Genesis. Hagar remembers being summoned by the king of Egypt who was smitten by the beauty of Sarai. Still young and likely a teenager, Hagar was then given to Sarai as her maidservant or a handmaid or a personal slave as part of Pharaoh's love offering or dowry to Abram, who he believed at the time was Sarai's brother. Hagar came to find out later this was all an elaborate scheme concocted by Abram to save his own skin He and Sarai had traveled to Egypt to escape a famine back in the distant land of Canaan. And Abram feared that he'd be killed by the Egyptian men who would want to eliminate any competition for Sarai's hand. And for selfish reasons, for self-preservations, or preachers today would say because of a lack of faith, Abram shows no concern for his own wife's interests and willingly gives her to another husband. The only problem was Pharaoh was smart, and he realized he'd been suckered. He eventually kicked Abram and Sarai out, including all the livestock and servants they'd acquired, and this included Hagar. Her going away present, whether she liked it or not, was being joined to Abram and Sarai's wacky household, which relocated back to Canaan and Hebron. As she lays by the spring, caressing her baby bump, perhaps even feeling the precious child growing inside. Reminiscing now about distant memories, she begins reflecting upon the reason why she is fleeing along the way of sure back to Egypt in the first place. The reason why she is deserting her place of employment in Hebron, the reason why she is risking her own life and even the life of her unborn child, all she was to Abram and Sarai was a means to an end. That's all they saw her as. Because back in Canaan, nine months or so ago, Sarai was growing impatient. It had been 10 years since God last spoke to her husband and gave him a promise, a pretty good promise, if I don't say so myself, one of a kind, in fact. I will make you a great nation, God said, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. But this promise only raised more questions than it did answers. Sarai was barren and advancing in years. Abram and Sarah were struggling to get pregnant. This predated them even setting foot on Canaanite soil. And this is a difficult, even heartbreaking season for any couple to navigate through, including couples today. But being Sarah's personal attendant, Hagar probably had front row seats to the waves of raw emotions that Sarah likely felt. Emotions that I will not even pretend to express. But going on 85 years now, Sarai has had much time to grapple with her infertility. Sarai's eyes were locked onto her womb. This is what her time and culture had conditioned her to do. All women in her time were taught to believe that children were a reflection of their worth. Childbearing was the highest priority for women in their society, the sign that God approved of them, an indication that they were a legitimate certified person. And the silence of children running around and playing reverberated in her soul as an echo chamber of her inadequacy on a level I will never understand. But Sarai has the added tunnel vision of the promise given to her husband. She has the added pressure of God giving her husband some assurances about his, not necessarily her, future And she is fearing that she might be left in the lurch for something that is quite frankly out of her control. Though she, Abram, and the rest of the world at the time don't necessarily see it that way. I imagine this being a bit of unsaid tension between Abram and Sarai. An awkward elephant in the room for decades Both knew that Sarai's barrenness was an obstacle to God's promise of building a nation, so much so that Abram one day voices his frustration to the Lord, Behold, you have given me no offspring. And amazingly, in response, God tells Abram, your own son shall be your heir. More literally, in the original Hebrew, God tells Abram that a son from his own loins, or we would say a son sharing his DNA, will inherit the promise. But again, this only raised more questions than it did answers, mainly for Sarai, whose doubts and fears have not yet been addressed. They've only been exacerbated. And for the next 10 years, Abram and Sarah had to sit with this knowledge, sit with this knowledge and wait, wait in anticipation for God to fulfill his word and provide for Abram a son, given no clarification on how or when, they had to take in faith that God would provide the heir. But time continued to tick by. Life continued and nothing happened. And all eyes were on Sarai, who he had yet to conceive and bore Abram, that promised heir. Nowhere has God specified that his promised child was going to come through Sarai. We, perhaps like Abram and Sarai, have just been assuming it, or we've heard this story before and know the end. But right now, it's been 120 months of anticipating, trying, ovulating, waiting, and trying again, and still the same sunken belly. And by the time we get to Genesis 16, the opening verse callously reminds us, now Sarai, Abram's wife, had bore him no children. This verse does not capture how Sarai is likely feeling. Worthless, remorseful, angry, but more likely a failure for not living up to her societal expectations of a wife of her time. For 85 years, the sense of guilt and shame has loomed over her every time she has looked her husband and the eye at dinner. Every time she has gone out in public, she has carried this burden for a long time, and she's tired and irritated. And it's around this time that I wonder if Hagar could remember eavesdropping on conversations between Abram and Sarai, where Sarai expressed her doubts with God. Sarai's bold assertion and even resigned acceptance that the Lord himself was preventing her from bearing children. To Sarai, it must be part of God's divine plan for her to be left out of the promise. Though alternatively, the possibility of the Lord providing her an heir never seems to cross her mind. But I wonder if Hagar was present when her mistress had her epiphany, her eureka moment, As Sarai paced back and forth in her tent, she glanced over at her Egyptian servant. She sees a lovely young woman with a higher statistical probability of fertility than she, and this gives her some inspiration. The gears start turning in her mind. She has found a solution to her husband's problem, but also a gateway for her to the good life the answer to god's untimely silence but also a means of achieving god's promise on her schedule she sees hagar her means to an end sarai knows why she can get a kid to call her own and also attain all the cultural privileges and social graces that accompany childbearing without actually getting pregnant she can use hagar In a quasi-form of adoption, Abram can sleep with Hagar, who is not his wife, to conceive and produce a child that his original wife, Sarai, could claim as her own. Though the child biologically belongs to Hagar, the child will be claimed as Sarai's, as if Sarai was the one who conceived and birthed him. Sarai becomes the child's surrogate mother. This is what Sarai proposes, to produce the son of promise through another woman. Now this is one of those Bible passages where the important caveat must be stated, do not try this at home. During the time of the patriarchs, polygamy was acceptable and even set in stone, literally. You can find rules for men having multiple wives etched in ancient Mesopotamian stones now housed in museums. Abram and Sarai were completely within the bounds of the law of the day to do this. And later on in Genesis, Jacob's wives Leah and Rachel will do the same thing. And you thought your family was weird. But as a pastor, I want to sit with Sarai a bit longer to hold her hand Offer her a Kleenex to dry her tears, to be a listening ear as she processes this heartbreaking, complex decision to approach her husband about marrying someone else to get a child. I also want to sit with Abram to counsel him through this difficult decision proposed to him by his wife, to journey with him as he probably wrestled with it. But many have told their story. Many have sought to rightfully vindicate them, but I want to sit with Hagar just a little bit longer. The innocent young woman who was thrown into the middle of this in the first place. The one who didn't get a vote or a say in the matter, The one who is a footnote in this story otherwise. The one who is ordered to betray her chastity and carry a child to term for someone else, even though not illegal, is still unjust. I don't want to leave Hagar just yet. As after Hagar becomes Abram's second wife, sure enough, she becomes pregnant. And he went into Hagar and she conceived, presumably on the first try. That had to have been a slap in the face to Sarai. But upon Hagar's realization that she was pregnant, Sarai's plan to conceive a child through her servant slowly unravels as Hagar soon recognized that she, unlike Sarai, would be in a position of incredible honor. Hagar knows that she is everything her culture has ever said that certifies a woman. She becomes a somebody now. She has everything Sarai's ever wanted. And as far as anyone knows, Hagar is carrying the promised baby. And this made her feel superior to Sarai. And she appears to rub it in her face. Things escalate over the months of her pregnancy. The Bible does a poor job of representing time. Many months tick by in between verses, though we cannot be certain exactly how Hagar's despising of Sarah played out. The fact that Sarah then would go to her husband to restore balance in the household rather than simply just telling her slave to knock it off shows that whatever Hagar was doing, she was no longer paying any attention to Sarah. Hagar and Sarai had become locked in a divisive power play that Sarai is unwilling to confront Hagar about. And so she goes to inform her husband. And again, the text leads us to believe all of Sarai's grievances and Abram's seemingly heartless response happened in one conversation. But likely this situation has been festering for quite some time and Abram eventually caves to Sarai's demands. She was incessantly pestering Abram like likely parallel to the intensity of Hagar's teasing as her due date approached. And finally Abram cannot handle it any longer and says, behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Sarai had put her slave in Abram's arm and now Abram is placing her slave back into her arms and that's all Sarai needed. All she needed was the green light. But we're not told the details. But we know that what Sarah did was so harsh and Abram's omission so cruel that it forces a pregnant woman to flee into the desert. Whatever Sarai did was enough to push Hagar to the desperate measure of trying to strike it out on her own while pregnant. And ironically, the Hebrew word translated as dealt harshly or mistreated to describe what Hagar did is the same word used later in the book of Exodus to describe Israel's abuse by the taskmasters of Egypt. It's interesting that we have an Egyptian slave being afflicted by Abram's wife and centuries later, Abram's descendants, who are now slaves, being similarly afflicted by the Egyptians. Hagar has lost track of time while walking down memory lane beside the oasis. But her momentary reprieve from the journey has become an elongated pit stop. She must keep moving or else she will perish along with her unborn child. The vultures are already beginning to circle above her and she still has many miles to cover before she's back in Egyptian territory. And as she gathers herself and surmises whatever strength she has left to press on, she is interrupted by an intruder, a stranger in the desert, a messenger. In fact, Genesis likens it to finding her as if someone was searching for her. And this is the first kind of this sort of interaction in the Bible. An angel of the Lord finds Hagar for a quick roadside chat. And we, along with Hagar, discover that she could flee from the presence of Sarai, but she couldn't flee from the presence of God. God sees her. Finding God in the desert was the last thing on Hagar's mind. The wilderness is an evil place. You might find a demon or two out there, but you'll never find God. And as far as Hagar is concerned, God was back in Canaan, taking care of her master, the protagonist of this story. But we discover God appearing in this side story, the B-plot. And all through the conduit of an angelic messenger, God finds Hagar out on the margins of this much larger narrative. And while every human has forgotten or given up on caring about her, God hasn't. God's presence is everywhere, even in the middle of nowhere, and it manifests itself to this Egyptian slave girl. But God is not someone who just passively notices. The messenger of God calls out to her, Hagar, servant of Sarai. The Lord calls her by name. The Lord knows her name. How differently he speaks to her than her human masters. Neither Abram or Sarai ever addressed her by name. They resorted to calling her slave. They couldn't be bothered by her name. But God is different. The Lord knows she is a slave, yet calls her first by name. The God of the universe begins with her name before addressing her employment status. Few men and even fewer women get that privilege in Scripture. Not Eve, Rebecca, Rachel, Deborah, Ruth, Esther, not even Sarai, despite how important she is in the main story, yet only Hagar hears her name from the lips of God. Feel free to double-check me as I know you all will, but the only woman I could find in Scripture with such an honor is a virgin by the name of Mary. Mary. Perhaps you've heard of her before. She's a bit of a minor character, unlike Hagar here. But not only does God see her and speak to her, but God wants to carry a conversation with her. Where have you come from and where are you going? This Egyptian slave girl is getting the same kind of one-on-one attention that only Abram has gotten. The same treatment that only major characters in Scripture get. God is personal to not just the uber-spiritual main players of faith. God is intimate with the least and the lowest and the marginalized and the unexpected. The radius of engagement and interaction from God has just been broadened. Not only beyond gender barriers with God interacting with a woman, but also racial as well, and that God is speaking with an outsider. Someone who does not belong to the lineage of Abraham. He is, that she is a foreigner, an African, an Egyptian, but also an enemy in the eyes of the Israelites who would read this text later. The God of Israel not only is personally knows, but is willing to invest in someone outside of Israel. What God is doing is radical, but that's what makes God's grace so amazing. Hagar's response reveals how stunned and shocked she is. All she can do is answer half of the angel's question, jumping straight to her situation. I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. But we all may be stunned and shocked by the angel's reply. Return to your mistress and submit to her. Is the angel being harsh and even cruel, telling her to return to the source of her trauma and submit to abuse? But notice that the angel of the Lord does not rebuke Hagar for fleeing, but instead the Lord gives Hagar the chance to return but with assurances." Return to your mistress, and I will surely multiply your offspring. God tells Hagar to go back to Sarah, to be nice to her, to submit to her, even, and maybe even quelch that uppity attitude she was flaunting in front of Sarai. But Hagar is not returning alone or empty handed or without hope. The angel of the Lord gives something to Sarai from the restricted section. Something exclusive to the main characters, something only Abram has gotten in this story. Not even her mistress has gotten this. She receives a divine promise. If Hagar decides to return to Sarai, she won't miscarry in the desert. She will give birth to a healthy baby boy who will be named Ishmael. And God covenants with Sarai, or with Hagar, that she will become the mother, not Sarai. Further, she will be the mother of a vast legion of descendants. And like Abram, who was promised a starry sky's worth of descendants, Hagar is promised her own innumerable amount of offspring. And while her and Abram's promises are not one-to-one, notably Abram's descendants are promised real estate and blessings, Hagar is still promised descendants just like her master, And while many today debate God's motives and the ramifications of this promise, the fact still remains that God's promise of anything to an Egyptian slave woman is astounding. One would assume that Sarai, the wife of Abraham, would be the first woman in scripture to receive a promise because of her husband. But instead, God chose to reveal himself to Hagar, the Egyptian slave, and she became the first woman to receive a promise in the entire Bible. This promise to a woman is unheard of, yet here we have it. But God is not strong-arming Hagar, God is not enticing Hagar to return to slavery with a prize at the end. God is not promising Hagar descendants if she submits to Sarai. God is not re-enslaving her, but giving her a form of freedom. And though Abram and Sarai did not give Hagar a choice, God empowers her to choose. To return with a promise or continue fleeing. And it's up to her. As she returns, it will be socially a slave, but spiritually on her own free will, but also safeguarded by the God of the universe. God is promising Hagar's immediate fears and uncertainties and worries will be immediately met by him personally because they are not trivial to him. And so Hagar enters into a relationship with God that reshapes her identity and her perspective of her situation. She is no longer just a slave, but an heir to God's promise. And we see this in a response, a response none in the Bible have come close to replicating. She called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are a God of seeing. For she said, truly I have been seen by him who looks after me. Hagar becomes the only human, man or woman, in all the Bible to give a name to God. No one else has done that or can add that to their resume. This nobody outsider names God because God sees those in the world and God is even faithful to nobodies and outsiders. God knew Hagar's name before Hagar knew God's name and in naming God, she wanted in a way to know who God will be in the future. Hagar is marveling at a gracious God who takes pity on someone like her. God is personal, who sees her for who she is, not for who they saw her as. Everyone saw Hagar as other than what God saw. They saw her as a means to an end, a way to instant gratification, a prophecy-fulfilling mechanisms. Hagar is floored that God sees her, and he sees all of her. Every blow Sarah inflicted, every blind eye Abram turned, every injustice Hagar suffered the god of the universe and the god of Abram saw all of it and the only way Hagar can express her astonishment is saying his name a name that encapsulates who he is and while it's not his only name god accepts it because it's theologically sound and perhaps all that's all that matters El Roy is the name the god who sees and when Elroy is staring at you in the desert, rightfully naming him is a valid mode of worship. Hagar grew up with gods in Egypt who would never bother to notice a slave girl like her. And then she's introduced to the god of Abram. And he's different from the gods of Egypt. Of Abram's god initially seems to only see one human at a time. But that's a faulty first impression of the God of Abraham. God's not exclusive to Abram, nor does God narrow his gaze to a select few. God sees everyone. God sees all. And the gods of this world can't do that. And our God does not want to be poorly marketed by people as masquerading as one of them. God is different. God sees all. And in the end, Hagar picks herself up. knowing show show sign of fear or doubt, and retraces her steps back to Hebron. Rejuvenated not only physically, but also spiritually, she freely obeys God, a God she probably doesn't know very well, but is growing to know by taking him at his word, returning to Hebron, submitting to Sarai, and giving birth to Abram's first son. The text seems to suggest that the only reason she could do this is because in God seeing her, Hagar's own vision has been changed. She's not looking at her womb anymore. She's not looking to one-up one her mistress anymore for worldly honor. She is the woman who has been noticed by God, heard by God, found by God, protected by God, nourished by God, and both she and her son are given promises by God, and that's all that matters to her. And as she keeps her eyes on this Elroy and his grace, everything changes. This minor character has a major message because it reveals something critical about God. Something about God that can be missed if we stick exclusively to the main plot. Our God is a God who hears and sees the suffering of even the lowest of people and cares for people who are outside of the main cast. It's a part of who he is because it is a part of his name. Are any of you walking in the footsteps of Hagar this morning? Wandering in the desert looking for relief. Fleeing a difficult situation looking for hope. Searching for someone to notice you. Can I direct your gaze at someone who is already looking at you? Our God is the same God who saw Hagar. Our God is a God who sees, and he sees you, each and every one of you. Whatever messy situation you're in, whether at home or at work or in the wilderness, whether because of something you've done or something that other people have done to you, God sees you nothing can obscure you from his vision nor should you want to i can assure you that he's a good loving and gracious god slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love one last thing and then i'll close hagar's time in the desert ends with her naming a spring Berlaharoi, laharoy roughly translated the well of him that lives and sees me and i cannot help but think of another minor character A woman just like Hagar, who was an outcast, had no real husband, was also met by someone at a well who really saw her and completely changed her life. There was a well in Samaria, and an unnamed woman was one day noticed by a man named Jesus. Jesus told her how he could give her water, but more than water, he said he could give her living water. Anyone who drinks this water, Jesus says, will never be thirsty again because this living water will become a spring of water welling inside them all the way into eternal life. And the Samaritan woman returned, like Hagar, to her very people who wanted nothing to do with her. And we hear her confessing to them, come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Could this man be the Savior, the Son of God, all because he noticed me, and he talked to me, and he offered me drink? It was for her. It was for them. Can it be for you? Our God is a God who sees, and he's waiting by the well.